0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Friday, July 6th, 2018, from Slate's to the Gist, and I'm Mike Pesca. Pruitt Drowns in the Swamp was the headline of the Wall Street Journal editorial board subhead, The Permanent Green Government Takes Out Trump's Deregulator. Now I want you to know for context, the Wall Street Journal thinks that's a bad thing. First of all, thinks the government is permanently green. I I guess they weren't covering the Paris Accords and our withdrawal thereof. But that is the Wall Street Journal editorial board's take. I'll read you some of this editorial. Chalk one up for the swamp. The permanent progressive state finally ran Scott Pruitt out of the Environmental Protection Agency on Thursday. And the tragedy is that Mr. Pruitt gave his enemies so much ammunition. You know, the tragedy of John Wayne Gacy is that he gave prosecutors so many examples of bones under his porch. No, sirs, the misdeeds were in fact the misdeeds. Not that the misdeeds allowed for a greater misdeed, which by Wall Street Journal logic would be what? Not allowing Scott Pruitt to poison the air and the ground just a little bit more? So what are the charges? Uh, we went over this, you probably know them, but what, what were those misdeeds, Those those little pieces of frippery, those whoopsie-doos that Scott Pruitt committed? Well, there was the lotion, the mattress, the Chick-fil-A, the first-class flights, the unauthorized raises for cronies, the unpaid-back loans to flunkies, the pens, the military jet, the private plane, the $50-a-night Airbnb from lobbyists, the cone of silence, the biometric lock on the door, the courtside seats to the UK home games, Rose Bowl tickets a cost, security for Disneyland, security for Italy, and all the times he misled congressional panels about much of what I've just mentioned to you. But don't worry, the Wall Street Journal editorial board addresses each of those charges. Let me read, and this will take some time, let me read their exhaustive rebuttal. Here we go. Mr. Pruitt says most of this was false or exaggerated, and no doubt much of it was. Full stop. That's it. Mr. Pruitt says, nuh-uh, and by the time he got to nuh, we were sold. What? Wall Street Journal. You know, journal is the root word of journalism. If you want to disprove the allegations, you could use journalism or not. Such are the joys of being the editorial board and that the journalism side of the Wall Street Journal. The Journal's editorial, I mean, this is one for the ages, goes on to recommend, Mr. Pruitt had to avoid even the hint of an ethical question and he should have been walking around the Federal Triangle handcuffed to a general counsel. That's one way to play it. Another would be not to be so horribly, blatantly, risibly, baroquely corrupt. Because, you know, if you do handcuff yourself to a lawyer, those handcuffs can chafe. And where are you going to get a really nice lotion to act as a balm to soothe the pain? As I was reading this, I just said to myself, have you no shame? And then I got to this part. The shame is that Mr. Trump is losing his bravest deregulator. No, 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 that is not the shame. That is a terrible take on shaming. Shameful even. It's almost as if Scott Pruitt, Donald Trump, and the Wall Street Journal editorial board can only vaguely guess at what shame is. It's almost as if they are shameless. On the show today, I aim my crossbow of criticism at the idea of targeted advertising. But first, and on a quite related note, journalist Ken Oletta is here with his diagnosis of the ad industry and the future of media. His new book is called Frenemies. And I do have to say, in this conversation, you will find Ken and I started off as frenemies, but we wound up as antagon acquaintances. (laughs) When I started reading Ken Oletta in The New Yorker in the 90s, he was writing a column owning a beat that I was interested in, and that beat was the media. But since then, in the last 20 or 25 years, hasn't really changed his beat. It just turned out that what he was really writing about was the zeitgeist all along. His new book is called Frenemies, the Epic Disruption of the Ad Business and Everything Else, and it's the everything else part that I'm particularly interested in. Hello, Ken. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. So you've been really, even though it seems you were chronicling this head of a network or that head of a studio, you've really been writing about advertising or media that's been fueled by advertising for decades, haven't you? I have, yeah. So what was your concept of how much advertising was influencing the content that we were getting?
1: Well, I didn't. I didn't have a sense that it was. I mean, if you write about the New York Times or you, you know, you write about the New Yorker, uh, you don't have any sense that the advertisers were influencing the content. But if you write write about television, I mean, I remember when I wrote my book on television called Three Blind Mice in '91. When they decided on the programs they were going to put in prime time, the best thing we uh, we saw that year, I thought, in a pilot form, was a dark show. Uh, set in in Hoboken, and the, literally the argument that killed the show from putting it on the NBC platform was that it was too dark; advertisers wouldn't like it. Yeah. So that and that was a subtle but nevertheless profound influence.
0: Right. So that was when advertising. That's when it presents itself and cannot be ignored. But I guess my thesis would be that what newspapers meant oh, they're these civic guardians, and oh, they cover city council, and they hold officials accountable, and they're these money-making enterprises. Everything wrapped up into the meaning of a newspaper was really more or less driven by how remunerative it was, which was really more or less driven by advertising.
1: Absolutely, And obviously, if you look at what's happened to newspapers, The decline of advertising and also of circulation is profound, and it's one of the reasons why many newspapers are on life support and others have just simply just perished. Now, your account
0: of Frenemies begins with a cri de corps, a shot across the bow, a speech that woke the industry up. Um, Could you tell us about that?
1: Well it was Jonathan Mandel, in March of two thousand and fifteen a former advertising executive gave a speech before the advertisers in which he said that the five giant holding companies uh which dominate uh, the ad agency business were basically stealing money from the clients what they would what they would do he said is is they would either buy time early on on speculation and then later sell it to the clients at an increased price. Or what they would do is they would go to a publisher and say, you know, if you give us a break, will put ads on your platform and then they would keep some of the VIG, <laughs> some of the proceeds and not share it with the client. That was a claim he was making and it caused a great stir and, and I use that as my opening chapter because I, I wanted, it, it illustrated the mistrust that was growing in the advertising business between the agencies and the clients. And that led to a whole spate of of agency reviews where the clients basically said, we're going to look at throwing out at the possibility of throwing out our agency and replacing it with another agency. And obviously take a close look at our at our contracts to see if they were abusing us.
0: So is this the story of an old sclerotic industry who was, which is the advertising industry that was skating based on, you know, the fact that it kind of uh, was the only one who was controlling what was really going on. It was a black box, and they were the only ones with the key. And then that old uh, way of doing things was disrupted, so more efficiencies were injected. Is, is this a story of that?
1: Well, it, it is a story in part of that, but it's also uh, about more than that. It was a story about fear. It was a story about how the digital world was disrupting the analog world and the advertising world suddenly was, was faced by these uh, what I call frenemies of like Google and Facebook that basically were, were saying, well, we're going to disintermediate the the agency and go directly to the clients and talk to them. And we have so much data that the client wants uh, and we can make your ad sales much more effective, because we we can tell you who will buy products, who the audience you wish to reach are, and and we could actually reach them through Facebook or Google.
0: Right. So it is true. It is not a lie. It is true that brands were throwing away a lot of money to old media based on misperceptions or, you know, being misled by ad agencies. That is true.
1: Well, you know, there's that old saying in, in the advertising world that I know that half of my advertising dollars are wasted. I just don't know which half.
0: Right. Is it then the case that, I don't know if there was a halcyon day of the American press, maybe sometime right after Watergate and there was more openness, but for this social construct, for this... Idea of a free press that was emboldened by being able to make a lot of money that all relied on kind of a lie about advertising. Is that really the
1: case? Well, it, 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 they were they, they were certainly. If you did a full page ad on a newspaper, um, you certainly got people's attention. I mean, they they would see. The argument is that people see that ad, and if you want to build up familiarity with a brand, you need a full page ad. You need a thirty second spot on TV. Uh, for your ad but but increasingly what they discovered is that a lot of those ads were not effective and that as as the world changed as you move to a digital world where you had many new sources of information a and where you had things like ad blockers suddenly added to your cell phone 20 percent of americans have an ad blocker on their phone which means you cannot do an ad on that phone and increasingly when you think about it the movement towards the cell phone, which is now the dominant instrument in our lives, a cell phone is as personal as your purse or your wallet. You don't lend it to people, and you don't like being interrupted on. It. So who gave you permission to, to buzz me with, with an ad? You're interrupting me. And that means a fall off on advertising, and it's effective. Enough. Right. But you do
0: quote experts like the uh, CBS uh, ad guy or the guy who is in charge of audience
1: research. David Poulter
0: poll track, and he says people actually like ads when they're well done and will allow them into their lives.
1: Uh, If you believe that, I'll sell you a bridge.
0: I tell you, um, it seems like uh, far-seeing people will make the case for subscriptions. Here at Slate, look, I subscribe to The Atlantic, I subscribe to The New Yorker, I subscribe to a bunch of uh, magazines and publications that I want to support, and here, here at Slate, we have a Slate Plus subscription service, but I also use Twitter and use the web to browse around and find the best thinking out there. And when the Washington Post asked me to subscribe and when the Boston Globe asked me to subscribe and damn it, I've just reached my four articles a month on the Indianapolis Star. It will if we go to a subscription model, the World Wide Web will no longer be worldwide, is my point.
1: Advertising is our ATM machine. It's it's it it supports in some cases, we hate that. And we hate the interruptions. And, and we hope they can come up with a way that it doesn't feel like an interruption. But but, but it's essential. It, it, it funds free. It makes possible newspapers and television and magazines and, and many apps.
0: So what did, did you come out of this having either a different appreciation for some of the insights of the advertisers or a different fear from what you've read?
1: A different fear. They believe that essential to figuring out the ad future is to do different kinds of ads. And different kinds of ads mean that we have so much, there's so much data out there about you and your proclivities and your behavior that if we could harness that data, we can target ads at individuals and offer them not a a sales pitch, but a, a kind of a service. For instance, Ken, you're walking down the street, and and we have your GPS so we, we, we can follow you. And we know that you bought the following item at the following store two months ago. So, Ken, if you go into the store now, we will give you 20% off on that $500 item. And isn't that great, Ken? And you say, well, the question is, how will I react to that? Well, Ken say. Well, that's, that's a real service. That's a great coupon. 20% off is great. Or we can say, how the hell do you know so much about me? Yeah. And, and that, so the privacy issue looms very large. And, and one, we're looking at a seesaw here and we don't know which way it's going to tilt because as, as, as your ability to target goes up, privacy goes down. As privacy goes up, yeah, targeting ability goes down
0: I think by the way I my own thesis for that is Ken would say how the hell do you know and Mike would say that's kind of weird but Milo and Emmett who are my 9 and 11 year olds they're not they're not going to be bumped by it at all
1: but that's the question you see that's why we don't know the future we don't know how, how they're going to respond five years from now to that
0: yeah Ken Oletta is the author of frenemies the epic disruption of the ad business and everything else thank you so much Ken
1: my my pleasure Mike
0: Now the spiel. So I read, and probably you read these articles too, articles worrying about targeted advertising. Facebook can target you. I read about these smartphones made in China. This is from the Wall Street Journal today. The P10 smartphone sold in Myanmar and Cambodia sends the owner's location and unique device details to a mobile advertising firm called Gmobi. Smartphones have been billed as a transformative technology in developing markets, bringing low-cost internet access to hundreds of millions of people. But this growing population of novice customers is a juicy target for data harvesters. So it's really a Hobson's choice. On the one hand, you have life-changing internet access. On the other hand, you might get ads that are relevant to you. Hmm. I read about Samba TV, which tracks which TV shows the viewer watches for purposes of showing the viewer targeted ads. This is said to elicit privacy concerns. But let's for a moment dwell on the ads that I am getting, the untargeted ads. Over the last couple days, my girlfriend and I binged on The Good Place, season two, brilliant show, brutal ads. The last five episodes are on Hulu, but the first seven were on the NBC app. The NBC app has three ad breaks so the ad, there are ad breaks where there would be in the normal sitcom but during each ad break they don't play different ads they have about five total ads that just rotate through each of these ad breaks and if you're going to like I did watch seven episodes with three ad breaks you get inundated and so I became friends with a girl named Nina and Nina has eczema
1: sorry I can't make it it's just my eczema again but it's fine it's
0: fine. Are you okay? Eczema. It's fine. But you know what? It's not fine. You could kind of tell it's not fine. I didn't pick that up until the 19th or so viewing, but it is not fine. Further clues cut to this lovely strawberry blonde woman at work. A co worker inquires, and she says
1: Hey, hi. Aren't you hot? Eczema again? It's fine.
0: She says fine, but if you notice, and this is subtle and wasn't revealed to me until forced multiple viewings, she pulls down her sleeve a little bit. She's saying eczema is fine and somewhat bizarrely telling this to a co-worker who she's so self-conscious around that she pulls down a sleeve. What is going on here, I think, is she's betraying her subconscious with an Overt action. This is good plotting. All right. Last scene of this commercial: our heroine Nina. You may know her from a Pure One commercial, also a Budweiser commercial, where she grabs a lima rita. So Nina is at an outdoor cafe with a friend, and the friend is dressed in a sleeveless top, a fun top, but Nina has on a long jean jacket. And then, for the first time, I think Nina is really heard. Because her friend pulls out an iPad, and loaded on this iPad is an audiovisual presentation for an eczema treatment. Just right there, ready to go. No buffering, no asking the wait staff at an outdoor cafe, hey, what's your Wi-Fi? No following up with, okay, when it says tapas is special, is the first S the dollar sign, is the second? Just right into a commercial on an iPad
1: myeczemaexposed.com Your eczema could be something called atopic dermatitis which can be caused by inflammation under your skin. Maybe you should ask your doctor. Go to myeczemaexposed.com to learn
0: more. Maybe you should ask your doctor. I don't know. I'm just a sleeveless-topped lady friend without eczema. Odd that I, not my silently suffering from eczema friend Nina, would be looking up this information. But there you go. There you go and there it went. 20 to 30 times as I tried to watch The Good Place. You know, I think The Good Place is one of the best comedies of the year. I have that sense. But mostly it is crowded out by this eczema commercial. Whenever I think of Kristen Bell and Ted Danson, I start scratching a little bit and I say it's fine. And if that wasn't enough, there was this other ad for fibromyalgia medication.
1: To most people, I look like most people. But on the inside, I feel chronic, widespread pain. Fibromyalgia may be invisible to others, but my pain is real.
0: I've seen this ad 45 times. Eczema, Lyrica, Eczema, Lyrica. Okay, I can't just tease Yeah, I got to deliver the fibromyalgia medication goods. Let me describe what's going on. So every woman says she looks like most people, but we find out she is not like most people. The camera pans to her back, she massages her shoulder a little little bit, and her back turns translucent, and we peer inside her back, and it's not bones or muscle or anything, it's this series, a network of neon pulsating nerves. What it looks like is the special effects from the movie Space, where Dennis Quaid as uh, test pilot Tuck Pendleton is miniaturized and injected into Martin Short's ass. It actually won an Academy Award for special effects, and now these special effects are used in this woman's back, all lit up, and underneath is the word dramatization. Really, fibromyalgia doesn't cause back translucence and neon innards. But here's what the cure might cause. Lyrica may cause serious allergic reactions, suicidal thoughts, or actions. Tell your doctor right away if you have these, new or worse depression, unusual changes in mood or behavior... Swelling, trouble breathing, rash, hives, blisters, muscle pain with fever, tired feeling, or blurry vision. You know fibromyalgia is bad if people put up with those side effects. Oh, but that's not all. Common side effects. Dizziness, sleepiness, weight gain, swelling of hands, legs, and feet. Don't drink alcohol while taking Lyrica. Don't drive or use machinery until you know how Lyrica affects you. Those who've had a drug or alcohol problem may be more likely to misuse Lyrica. Avoid all nightshade vegetables and synthetic fabrics when on Lyrica. Do not listen to electronic synth-pop band Depeche Mode while on Lyrica. You may initiate knock-knock jokes on Lyrica, but do not take the who's there part on Lyrica. Hey, you know what? I'm fine. I don't have to worry. You know why I don't have to worry? Because I don't have fibromyalgia. And I don't have eczema. I also... Don't look like most people to most people. I look like a sobbing, raging mess because I have seen these commercials not once, not twice, but thousands of times. Side effects of exposure to Lyrica commercials may include exaggeration and histrionics. But how are these non-targeted ads that have zero relevance to my life, how are they better Then a targeted ad, how are non-targeted ads better for anyone? Why is it a somehow healthier media ecosphere if people who don't need a product are constantly shown the product and products that a person might need are shown to some other person? What I'm saying is that somewhere out there, there is a poor fibromyalgia sufferer who is seeing the ads for inpatient clinics or spiced rum that clearly should be targeted to me. I I just do not understand the dangers of targeted ads. Is the danger that they'll work? That customers will buy the things? If that's the danger, then why do ads exist at all? Is it only okay that we show people ads to buy stuff because most people won't buy the stuff? If ads start working, then we've done something wrong? Is that what's keeping advertising supported mass media on this side of the ethical line? The fact that most of it doesn't work? And if the ads do work, then we've done something wrong? I do not understand. I just wanted to watch The Good Place to situate myself inside a blissful comedy and yet, what do I find? I find myself in advertising hell. That is not the good place that I know. It's not fine, Nina. It's not fine. And that's it for today's show. Join Slate Plus. Members get bonus segments, exclusive member-only podcasts, and more. Sign up for a free trial today at slate.com slash plus. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre bien who are worried about the 25% tariffs on $34 billion in Chinese imports. But wouldn't that be after the tariffs? $42.5 billion? Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He thinks that if Trump takes the tariffs off eventually, and then the number shrinks from $42.5 billion back to 34. billion, then the president will brag that he lowered the trade deficit with China by 20%. Though knowing him, he'd probably say 25 or 90. The gist, we have been stocking up on bulldozers and knitting needles in anticipation of this trade war. Who's laughing now? Umpru pru du and thanks for listening.